where and how they, in the last couple of messages, and today we're going to start looking at the first commandment. And of course, the first commandment uh, in Scripture. So Exodus chapter 20, we'll be looking at other places in Exodus, so be ready to follow along as we look at those passages to get some of the historical background and context of leading up to the Ten Commandments. And just follow along as I read again these words in the Word of God. Exodus chapter 20, verse 1 through 17. It says, Then God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself an idol or any likeness of what is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or in the water under the earth. You shall not worship them or serve them. For I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children, of the, on the children on the third and the fourth generations of those who hate me, but showing kindness to thousands, to those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not, you shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not leave him unpunished who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Six days you shall labor and do your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath of the Lord your God. In it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter or your male or your female servant or your cattle or your sojourner who stays with you. For in six days the Lord made the heavens and the earth the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be prolonged in the land which the Lord your God gives you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house. You shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant or female servant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your neighbor. Let's pray. Father, as we look again at these commandments, we know, Lord, they are permanent. They have been written in stone. And, Lord, they also show us your character and what your will is. And so, Lord, I pray as your children, we would know them well and that we would pass them on to our children. For, Lord, there is not 11 commandments. There is only 10, meaning that what you have given to us is perfect. The law of the Lord is perfect. And, Lord, we know that the law used in the right way leads one to Christ, even though we know the law cannot save anyone but it can convict of sin and guilt and bring someone to the one who can save them, Jesus Christ. Thank you for that. And I pray, Lord, your law will continue to be used and impressed upon the consciences of those who have not trusted you yet and be be found to be guilty before you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would 
convict them of their sin of righteousness and of judgment and cause them to run to Christ. And thank you, Lord, that anyone who comes to you, you'll in no wise cast out. And for this, we praise you. So now, Lord, as we look at this first commandment today, and we see the background, convict us of it, and also, Lord, help us to live it out every day. In Christ's name, amen. So at this point in our uh, study of the Ten Commandments, we must be looking at the historical setting and the context in which we find the commandments. God freed his people from slavery in Egypt in order to bring them out from under the oppressive bondage of the Egyptians into freedom, Israel, Israel's exodus, and that's what exodus actually means, is to bring out uh, from Egypt, was very, a very dynamic event for the people of Israel. The people uh, of Israel have really com- commemorated the exodus uh, to this very day. They celebrate the Passover observances where Moses, of course, relayed to the elders. And just look back to chapter 12 uh, and verse number 21. This is where the Passover is given, uh, where each household was to slay an unblemished land, where it says in Exodus 12, 21, then Moses called for all the elders of Israel and said to them, go, take for yourself lambs according to your families and slay the Passover lamb. And of course, they were to drain the blood and then paint it on the top and the sides of their entrance as a sign to the Lord to spare the firstborn within that doorway. And then look at Exodus 12, verse 22 and 23. It says, you shall take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in blood which is in the basin and apply some of the blood that is in the basin to the lentil and to the door, two doorposts, and none of you shall go outside the door of his house until morning, for the Lord will pass through to smite the Egyptians. When he sees the blood on the lentil and on the two doorposts, the Lord will pass over the, the door and will not allow the destroyer to come into your house to smite you. So at midnight, every firstborn of Egypt, both man and beast, who did not have the blood on their doorway, Israel or Egyptians, they were not protected by the blood and they were ultimately killed. Look at verse 29 of chapter 12 of Exodus. It's now, it says, now it came about at midnight that the Lord struck all the firstborn in the land of Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on his throne, to the firstborn of the captive who was in the dungeon, and all the firstborn of cattle. So in Egypt, that night, only, only the blood of the slain lamb on the doorpost made the difference between life and death. Well, with Jesus' blood, it's the same. Just as these events marked the climactic moment of Israel's redemption from bondage, so also they foreshadowed and pictured the great act with which Christ purchased eternal redemption for every single person, Jew and Gentile, who will, who will receive, of course, Jesus Christ as their own Lord and Savior, repent of their sin, and believe in him, in which 
his blood was shed on their behalf, and because of that, it washes away their sin, and it protects them from eternal judgment. So see, the, the whole message of the Exodus was all picturing what would come in its final form in the person of Jesus Christ. So this is Christian history that we're reading here also, and it illustrates God's working out of redemption, how he was going to buy humanity back to himself through the sacrificial blood of an animal in the beginning to cover sin and then in Christ himself to wash the sin away. Back in Exodus chapter 3, this is what God said to Moses back then because he gave them a promise in Exodus 3 verse 12, certainly I will be with you and this shall be a sign to you that it is I who have sent you when you have brought the people out of Egypt, you shall worship God at this mountain. So that was a promise given by God. It's been three months now, as we get to the commandments, since the people have come out of Egypt through the Red Sea into the wilderness. And it was now time that the redeemed nation of Israel should receive further instruction as to what would be their responsibility with their newfound freedom. Because even in, as a believer, in Christ we have a newfound freedom. We, we can live for the first time for the Lord with our whole life. And we understand what that means as we learn the word of God. So God did not redeem his people to set them wandering aimlessly in the wilderness. They were redeemed in order to go into the wilderness and to serve and worship Jehovah. That was the name given in Scripture of the covenant-keeping God. So the Lord had a purpose for his people, and he made them free in order that they might choose freely to love and to honor himself. So God's people's first responsibility was to reflect the Redeemer's holiness. This was to be accomplished in the life of the people by loving obedience to him. First, the first purpose, he would make them a nation of priests. That is, he would make them mediators between God and men. That's what they were supposed to be. They were supposed to be the message between God and people to take it to the world. And then, of course, in addition to that, God's purpose included making Israel a holy nation. They were to be set apart unto God, different, completely different than any other nation. And it would be their responsibility to demonstrate God's standards of holiness to a world that at that time was steeped in the morass of sinful exploits and idolatry. Now, before they can carry out this responsibility, several things had to be understood and made clear to the people of Israel. And In fact, there was three things that God wanted them to do and know before he would even give them the commandments. And this was the first thing. Now, we're turning to Exodus chapter 19, and the first thing is simply this, commitment. God wanted them to be committed. He wanted to be the, He wanted to have them ready 
to receive the responsibility in obedience. Look what it says in 19, chapter 19 of Exodus, verse 5 through 8. It says, Now then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, verse 6, and you shall be, you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. So Moses came and called the elders of the people and set before them all these words which the Lord had commanded him. All the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken we will do. And Moses brought back the words of the people to the Lord. So it was this first thing of being committed to God. Then secondly, they were to understand something very important. And that's character. And that is knowing the character of God. And what kind of character did God have? He was a holy God, right? They had to know that. It was necessary to impress upon the people the vast gulf that existed between his holiness and their sinfulness. They had to know that because it is very dangerous to come into the presence of a holy God in the wrong way. In fact, that would be death for anybody. Look at chapter 19, verse 9 through 13. I want you to see it. It says, The Lord said to Moses, verse number 9, Behold, I will come to you in a thick cloud so that the people may hear when I speak with you and may also believe in you forever. Then Moses told the words of the people to the Lord. The Lord also said to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow and let them wash their garments and let them be ready for the third day. For on the third day, the Lord will come down on, the Mount, on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. You shall set bounds for the people all around saying, Beware that you do not go on the mountain or touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he shall surely be stoned or shot through. Whether beast or man, he shall not live. When the ram's horn sounded a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So see, this first attribute of God, the people were to learn very clearly, was that he was holy and that he could not just be approached in, in any old way. He had to be approached in the right way. An attribute is a quality or characteristic that is true of a person. Of course, holiness is very true of who God is. Our understanding and ideas concerning God need to be as true as possible if we're going to properly worship him. So ideas found in the scripture is what I'm talking about. God's attribute of holiness means that he is untouched, that he's unstained by evil sin in the world, that God is absolutely pure and perfect. He is devoted to seeking his own honor. The term holy means to be separate, to be other, to be higher, to be superior, to be different. We derive the word, as I mentioned before, holiday from the word holy. And what is a holiday? Holiday is a special day. It's, a different, it's different than all the rest of the calendar days, right? 
That's what a holiday is. And so the people must see God, that he is separate, he is higher, he is utterly different and cannot be approached by human beings in any old freestyle manner. However, the Lord God wants his people to approach him. He wants his people to come to him, but it must be as God requires it. According to God's standards, it must be done. Exodus chapter 19, look at verse number 12. Again, he shall set bounds for the people all around, saying, Beware that you do not go up on the mountain and touch the border of it. Whoever touches the mountain shall surely be put to death. God was serious about that. Now, why is that? Because he's holy and because we are sinful. And sinful people cannot go into the presence of a holy God. That's why anybody who does not know Jesus Christ cannot go to heaven without Christ because God makes us holy, right? God gives us his righteousness. So no one can go into the presence of God because they think they're good enough or they have good works to bring. You cannot do it because who took care of your sin? You can't do it. The only one who can is God. So see, in other words, that only through Christ who is holy, who makes us holy, can we go into the presence of a holy God. That's the only way anyone could ever do that. So in Scripture, when holy men lifted up their eyes to heaven and caught a momentary glimpse of the character of God, it reduces them to trembling in dust and in ashes, that this is exactly the situation that we find in our passage of Scripture. The people's experience with the presence of God is 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 really two things are going on. They are fascinated by it because this is a new thing for them. And also they are terrified by it. And that's in a real sense how we should deal with the holiness of God. We are fascinated by who God is, but we are also terrified by who God is because he is the almighty God. So so to, to that end, the Lord ordered preparations to sanctify or consecrate, sanctification, consecration, but the same thing, the people for hearing his voice and set up boundaries around the place of his presence so they would not die, so they would not be harmed. He gave them that warning. And so then we see also this whole thing about consecration in verse 14 uh, through 19. But just look at verse number uh, 14 and 15. It says, so Moses went up, went down from the mountain to the people and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments. And he says, and he said to the people, be ready for the third day to go near, to not, do not go near a woman. Matter of fact, they're to clean their whole life up. They're not to do their normal routines. In verse 16, so it came about on the third day when it was morning, there was thunder and lightning and flashes and a thick cloud upon the mountain and a very loud trumpet sound so that all the people who were in the camp trembled. And Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God. And then notice down to verse 21. It says, Then the Lord spoke to Moses, Go down, warn the people, so that they do not break through to the Lord to gaze, and many of them perish. Also, let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves or else the Lord will break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, the people cannot come up to the Mount Mount Sinai, for you warned us, saying, 
set bounds around the mountain and consecrated. Then the Lord said to, to him, go down and come up again, you and Aaron, with you. But do not let the, peop- the priest and the people break through to come up to the Lord, or he will break forth upon them. So Moses went down to the people and told them everything God was telling him. So only after all this preparation were the people now ready to hear. The ten words is really the, how it's categorized in, in Hebrew but it's the Ten Commandments because they are commands. They are not suggestions. They are commands. A holy, redeemed people must understand the holiness of the one who had redeemed them and the standard of life fitting for those who had been made a holy people or a holy nation. So back in Exodus 19, verse 5 and 6, it says, So then, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my own possession among all the peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the sons of Israel. At that point, now the people were ready to receive the commandments. The standard of living required of God's people. And this standard of living is still in effect today. This is how we are to live. We are to have a high view of God. The highest view that we could ever have is going to come from Scripture, how we understand who God is. And so when we come to that, we actually come to the first point in Exodus chapter 20 and turn there, and we'll see that right there in verses 1 through 3, which we'll be dealing with today, and that in the first verse and a half, we actually have the person revealed in the first commandment, and that becomes uh, very important for us to hear. And of course, who is this God? who has revealed himself, well, he is the God who is the God of revelation. Now, notice what it says in the passage. It says, verse number one, then God spoke all these words saying, I am the Lord, your God. That's as far as I'm going at this point. All right, meaning what? That he's the God of revelation. He's the God who speaks to us. He's the God who who can be known. He's the God who wants us to know who he is. And so he's given us the word of God. Of course, there's several words used here. One word in Greek for God, or in Hebrew, is for God is Elohim. And the other word is a very special word that he uses as the covenant-keeping God, and it is the word Jehovah. Uh, another way of saying that is Yahweh, all right, the Lord meaning that he is the self-determined one. He is the existing one, the one who keeps his promises and makes them come to pass. That's who he is. In fact, the Hebrew memorial name is Yehovah, right? And it looks like this. Uh, the bottom one looks like that in Hebrew, and it's, it's really called a 
tetragarum. A tetragarum, it really just means four words, four letters, right? And so there's just four letters. There was no vowel pointings in the original Hebrew, so it would be just, just how it sounds right there, Yehovah, right? Where we would get, we, we pr- try to have to pronounce it with vowels. And so it came to the point where the people would not even pronounce the name of God because it was so holy and they hesitated. And so in the reading of the Old Testament, they substituted with the word Adonai or uh, the Lord the Lord here. And that's what you're going to find all throughout the Old Testament. And he is considered the covenant promise-keeping God. When God promises his people, he will actually bring it to pass. Now, again, just take your Bibles real quick and turn to Exodus chapter 6. Go Turn back a, uh, several chapters and notice the promises that God gave him, gave the people of Israel way back when, and you'll see that he uses the term together, I am the Lord. All right, Remember, I am, when Moses went before Pharaoh, he said to God, I'm going to come before Pharaoh. Who should I tell him sent me? And God said to him, tell them, I am sent you. All right, I am means that God is, is that God in whom that there is uh, no beginning and no end, that there's no one like him. He is the only one, and that's, that's what that really actually means. But notice what, how's it, how it's recorded here, the promises to Israel and to his people. It says in Exodus 6, verse 6 through 8, it says, Say therefore... To the sons of Israel, here it is, I am the Lord. And what will he do? I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, and I will deliver you from their bondage. I will also redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. Then I will take you for my people, and I will be your God, and you shall know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians, in verse 8, I will bring you to the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, and I will give it to you for a possession. I am the Lord. So again, right there in that passage, you see how he is the covenant-keeping God. That's who he is. He is the God of revelation And by revelation, I mean that God communicates himself to his people. It says in in Exodus 20, verse 1, and he spoke all these words saying, God speaks words to us, words that we can understand. The word of God came to mean uh, just the written body of revelation we call and what the New Testament writers called the scriptures. Right? The scriptures contain the record of revelation. In other words, the, word, the very words of God that come from heaven to earth and are written by holy men of God. So revelation is an authoritative body of glorious instruction from God that is accessible to men. In simple terms... God can be known. The Lord God has made his will known, and his will is found in the word of God. All right, that's who he is. 
He's, he's not a God who's, who's like a mysterious God that, that can't be known. He is not a God that is always elusive and you can never really get a hold of him. No, he very clearly says to us as people, listen, I am a God who created you and I am speaking to you and this is my will for you. It's very clear of what God wants from his people and it's clear about who he is. We must understand that, who he is. See, God reveals himself as a very personal God. There is something warmly personal about the statement. If he says there, I am the Lord, your God. See, that's personal. And that's how God reveals himself. So that is the first thing. The second is this. Underneath that, that God is a God of redemption. And if you notice in Exodus chapter 20, verse number 2, it says, I am the Lord, your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. Now, if you notice everywhere in Scripture, this is mentioned over and over and over again. Like, hey, I don't, wanna, I don't want you to forget this, that I am the God of redemption. I am the God who purchases you out of slavery, which you could not do yourself. And I do it in a very specific way. And this is what I do. You can't do that. I do this. So this is what God has done for them, that God not only communicates clearly to his people who he is and what he requires, but also acts on their behalf. And notice God did not say in verse number two, because he, uh, he didn't say, because I created you, I'm giving you the law. He says, no, I am the Lord you God who brought you out of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. In other words, it is on the basis of his great act of redemption that he sought their obedience. You know, the Hebrew people were some 430 years in bondage and slavery under the harsh taskmasters of Egypt. Each day included backbreaking toil and agonizing work. With the slightest infraction came the crack of the stinging of the Egyptian whip. Yet the people cried out to the Lord, and he helped them. He, he put hope before them, and he put promises before them, and they held to those promises. And so Exodus mentions how the cruel treatment actually came about. How did it come about? How is it they forgot about Joseph and the great things Joseph had done? And now they, they're treating the people of God in, in a very, very damaging way. Well, Let's go back to Exodus chapter 1 and see why this came about. It came about by their, for, their forgetfulness, by their fear of a people that they didn't understand, by their false gods that they had, and of course by foolish, their foolishness of presuming the worst of a people. Look at it in Exodus chapter 1 verse 7. It says, but the sons of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly and multiplied and became exceedingly mighty so that the land was filled with them. Now a new king arose over Egypt who did not know Joseph. They forgot their history. Verse number 9, he said to his people, Behold, the people of the sons of Israel are more and mightier than we. Come, 
Let us deal wisely with them, or else they will multiply, and in the event of war, they will also join themselves to those who hate us and fight against us and depart from the land. Verse 11, so they appointed taskmasters over them to afflict them with hard labor. They built for Pharaoh storage cities like Pitham and Ramses, but the more they afflicted them, the more they multiplied, and the more they spread out so that they were in dread of the sons of Israel. The Egyptians compelled the sons of Israel to labor rigorously and made their lives bitter with hard labor, with mortar and bricks, and at all kinds of labor in the field, all their labors which they rigorously imposed on them. That's who they were. That's, that, that's what happened, is that these people got so large in the land of Egypt, it made the leadership scared that they would turn against them and take over. And so they put this on them. Of course, we know it was all the will of God that was taking place. In fact, we, we see in Scripture that this is the rehearsal of many of the times when the Hebrews were uh, thinking about what God has done. This was, was always the rehearsal. Like in Psalm 77, it says this is the, great, the rehearsal of the great day of deliverance when God redeemed his people from the slave market of Egypt to freedom. It says you, verse number six of 15, you have by your power redeemed. Verse 16, it says, the waters saw you, O God. And of course, every verse, verse 17, your arrows. Verse 18, it says, the sound of your thunder was in the whirlwind. Lightnings lit up the world, and the earth trembled and shook. This is the day we're talking about here when the commandments were given. Your ways in the, in the sea, and that your path in the mighty waters, your footprints may not be known. You led your people like a flock by the hand of Moses and Aaron. So this was always on their mind. In other words, that God deserves first place in the lives of his people because of who he is and also because of what he has done for them. Now, that brings us to something that is very important for you and I to know because if you turn back to Exodus chapter 20, notice verse number 3. A second thing that we see is the principle revealed in the first commandment. And it says there in verse 3, you shall have no other gods before me. Now that seems very simple and clear, doesn't it? And that's what's amazing about the Ten Commandments. There's not a whole lot of stuff here. But why are they so hard to keep? The reason why they're so hard to keep is because we have a sinful heart and our heart wanders all over the place for something to worship. That's who we are. We are born to worship and our hearts are prone to wander. And so this commandment is given for that very purpose. You shall have no other gods before me. So in this first commandment, the absolute sovereignty and preeminency of the creator is insisted upon. Since God is who he is, and he will tolerate no competitor or rival at, at all, 
His claims upon us are paramount. So we're looking at defining other gods. In the religions of today's world, there are many so-called gods, just as many opinions about what God is or who God is or what God is like. So the Bible, on the other hand, claims to be the revelation of the one true God. The Bible never tries, ever tries, to prove God. It simply states and affirms it. It never tries to prove anything when it comes to the character of God. In fact, this passage of Scripture in Isaiah chapter 43, verse 10, is an excellent passage of Scripture. Notice what it says here. It says, it says, you are my witnesses, declares the Lord, and my servant whom I have chosen, so that you may know and believe me and understand that I am he. Before me there was no God formed, and there will be none after me. I even, I am the Lord, and there is no one, no Savior besides me. Now that's pretty clear. In, in that proclamation in Isaiah, he alone is God and must have his first place. If not, all of life and its relationships are in disorder. So the problem that we actually have in our life is idolatry. All right, Because we are pursuing things to try to fill up that void in our heart, and we're all pursuing the wrong things. We're trying to fill something up that we know there's got to be more. The the ancient Near East, Eastern world, was steeped with the belief and worship of many gods. God revealed himself to Moses and to the children of Israel in the midst of this pagan polytheistic culture. So in pagan thought, no god was ultimate. And, God, and really, gods were believed to be finite and not absolute. No god was, was believed to possess ultimate wisdom and power. So rather, they were considered to be more like superhumans uh, than sovereign deities. They had impulses and desires and could commit evil acts. So the notion was that the gods were subject to the existence uh, of some kind of primordial realm above the gods that had control over the activities of these many gods that men would have. And, of course, this led to the belief that gods could be influenced by magic and by ritual in order to sway them in one's favor. Now, of course, this was accomplished by, uh, with pagan rituals in which Worshippers tried to satisfy the gods by providing some sacrifice uh, and then some, or some food or some drink. And if you go any places in the world, you'll find this kind of activity taking place in many parts of the world, even today. So the, the nation had just come out of Egypt where the inhabitants of the land worshipped a plethora of false gods. They worshipped a host of loathsome, creeping, crawling things like reptiles. Their more prominent gods was the god Ra, which was the sun god. And also in the land of Canaan, where they were actually, Israel was heading, 
There was, they were filled with evil worship. Those lands for the Canaanites bowed down to false gods as Dagon and Baal and Chemosh and Ashtaroth. And then even later on, all through Scripture, you see God's name, names like gods of Asherah or Molech or Sakuth or Tammuz or, of course, even in the New Testament, Diana, that there's worship, idolatrous worship everywhere you go. Why is that? Now, was, was this a problem for the people of Israel all through their journeys? The belief in other gods was ingrained in ancient Near Eastern society. So temptation for God's people to adopt pagan concepts and views was always a present reality, always. In fact, right there in the Bible, just turn to Joshua, all right? The book of Joshua. Now, that's, you just keep going forward. You'll, you'll come to Deuteronomy, and then you'll come to uh, Joshua, right? Now, I want you to really see this because now we're, we're looking at a later history of Israel. They, they're coming through the desert, and now they're going to go into the promised land. And I want you to notice that even at the end of 40 years of wilderness wandering, Joshua, after entering into the promised land and after many miraculous victories and receiving the, uh, the land inheritance promised by the Lord, even then, they had to be challenged to put away their idols. Look what it says in Joshua chapter 24, 24 verse 14 through 16, and you're going to notice in this passage a very famous passage of Scripture. Joshua 20, verse 20, uh, chapter 24, verse 14, it says, Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and truth, and put away the gods which your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord, verse 15, if it is disagreeable in your sight to serve the Lord, choose for yourself today whom you will serve whether the gods which your father served, which were beyond the river, or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you are living. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. And the people answered and says, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord and serve gods. Now, what are they doing there? They're making their commitment. But you know the little ditty, liar, liar, pants on fire? Well, look at what Joshua says in verse number 19 of chapter 24. Now, they made a verbal commitment, right, that they were going to serve God. Look at verse number 19. Then Joshua said to the people, you will not be able to serve the Lord, for he is a holy God. He is a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after he has done good to you. Verse 21, the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Joshua said to the people, you are witnesses against yourself, that you have chosen for yourself the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are witnesses 
Look at verse number 23. This is a very interesting verse number 23. Because it says this. Now, therefore, after all this, he says, put away the foreign gods which are in your midst. Why are the people are still steeped in idolatry? And it says, incline your hearts to the Lord, the God of Israel. So the people said to Joshua, we will serve the Lord, our God, and will obey his voice. They didn't. That's the history of Israel. See, people may be able to evade the eyes of other people, but they will not be able to escape the notice of God as he secretly searches our hearts to those people who are secretly entertaining the worship of other people. In other words, they're putting something else first besides God. Anything that is first besides God is an idol, whatever you want to call it. We don't have to make idols of stone or idols of wood. See, Joshua knew that if the people were not worshiping the true and living God, then they were worshiping something else. That's why he says, listen, if you don't worship the true and living God, then choose today whom you're going to worship. Why? Because you're going to worship something. Why not worship the true and living God? There are other gods besides idols of wood and stone, money, pleasure, power, fame, fashion, gluttony, a score of other things which make self-supreme and usurp the rightful place of God in the affections and the thoughts. That's very interesting. Because we are talking about, remember, the two great commandments, to love the Lord thy God with all your heart, mind, and strength, and then to love your neighbor as, as yourself. It has to do with what you love, where your affections and what you think about. Those are the two major areas in which you can identify whether you have slipped into some kind of idolatrous behavior. In fact, there are three exchanges that people will make when they misinterpret the character of God and they worship someone or something besides him alone. And they will make that exchange because we will worship something. And just quickly, some of the exchanges, I'll at least threefold. The first one is you exchange the truth of God for a lie. Listen to what it says in Romans chapter 1, verse 25. For they exchanged the truth of God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. See, they exchange the truth of God for a lie. Second thing that will happen is that they exchange affections they should have for their creator God for other things. Like the passage of Scripture in 2 Timothy, chapter 3, verse 1 through 4. Remember what it said there. It says, but realize this, that in the last days, difficult times will come, for men will be lovers of self, lovers of money, boastful, arrogant, revilers. And then it goes on to say, lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. So that means that it it is that false teaching or believing something that is false that leads one to develop misplaced affections that means a person becomes twisted in their priorities. They don't know what should be first and what should be second. They think they're first. So instead of God being first, self is first. Instead of 
money being used to provide basic needs and helping others and giving, it is used to fulfill self-wants instead of their pleasure being satisfied in knowing and loving the Lord and is satisfied by feeding their lusts and their passions. So from that passage of Scripture, there's going to be affections that are going to move towards people who are lovers of self, people who will be lovers of money, and then people who will be lovers of pleasure. Lovers of pleasure. Isn't that what happens? Can't we see that all around us? That we have here in the statement of Scripture revealing uh, that real religious passion uh, is for what provides you pleasure. Worshiping God actually should supply all the pleasure that we need in this world. It also, on the opposite end, it conveys a life lived in pursuit of self, aims, which claims God at the same time it ignores God. And then, of course, a last exchange that would take place is that true teaching is replaced by false teaching. People who are left with no standard to guide them and no compass to ensure that they are indeed heading in a safe direction, they will be left heart, mind, and will to, to their own whims and to their own passions and emotions with no boundary markers. So people who are really devoid of truth will be sus- sus- really susceptible uh, to develop misplaced affections and will be at risk of being misled by false teachers and will end up worshiping other gods instead of the Lord their God. You know, one of the devastating things when you read the prophets, you know what the people of Israel did? They used the real name of God for idols. So they syncretized, they, syncretism became it. They, they just meshed it all in there. And they thought, hey, if, hey I'm doing both, right? I'm going to hedge my bets. I'm going to do both. And what happens is that that became judgment to them. In fact, today, people have idols of possessions. They live to have things, to fill their desires for cravings for houses and, and cars and boats and leisure trips. And they forget it is uh, who they're ultimately responsible to. So money, possessions, power, prestige is their God. What they possess, they have made gods, and they bow down to them, and they dispense large amounts of money and time and energy to maintain them. Also, people find people to worship. We we live in a people-worshiping culture in America. Many people make the mistake of worshiping celebrities, other impressive figures throughout history. Everyone wants to be famous, it seems like. Everybody wants to be in the limelight. They want to be recognized. They want to be an American idol, a hero. People worship musicians, TV, video, social media, and movie stars, movie star personalities. They want to be like them. They want to act like them. They want to look like them. So they spend their time and money to try to realize their goal. It eludes them 
that that kind of behavior, that kind of pursuit is actually nothing but idolatry. And then people have idols of profession, of work. Their whole world revolves around this. They strive and fret and, and push for position. They want to achieve this. They sacrifice all of that. This is what they live for. Their life is their work because their work is their idol. See, God is pushed out of the way so they can get where they're going. Their work has occupied the place only God alone should occupy. And these are, these are modern-day idols that we all can be tempted to pursue. And if God is not first, this is what we do. So every day we need to evaluate whether we got pulled into any of this kind of wrong thinking. So that leads me to the last part of our text in Exodus. And it's this, we have to dethrone those gods. Why should we dethrone them? Because look what it says in verse number three, you shall have no other gods before me. Highlighting that before me. Now this... uh, rendering this last phrase is rendered in several ways next to me or over me or in front of me or opposite me but the best rendering found in uh old testament manuscripts and is is besides me uh you should have no other gods besides me See, the command here is others who have said that thou shalt have no other gods to confront me or in front of me or be before my face. That is, to be set up as a rival object of service and adoration. See, gods that are set up over against Jehovah may be said to be before him in his sight, that they are gods besides, in addition to him. Let's just add Jesus on to everything else we're believing. It's an addition that's still idolatry. So in matter of course, they are gods opposed to him. See, if our affections are going to be for God, we cannot have our affections on anything else besides him. So there is to be no God in your heart that you are giving allegiance to except Jehovah accept the Lord Jesus Christ. If you are, then it must be discarded. Your full loyalty must be given to the true and living God who has revealed himself in verbal and written form. Faithfulness must be given to Jehovah alone. It's just like it says in Deuteronomy, they sacrificed to demons who were not God, to gods whom they have not known New gods who came lately, whom your fathers did not dread. So when the one true and living God is not first and worshipped as supreme and the only God, there is where all the trouble starts in our life. That's where all the trouble is in the world, in all of humanity, is because God is not honored as as. He revealed himself in Scripture. In fact, even if you, in later history of Israel, the the northern kingdom, Israel, and the southern kingdom of Israel were defeated 
the Bible tells us. The northern kingdom was defeated by the nation of the Assyrians, and the southern kingdom was defeated by the nation of the Babylonians. Now, why were they defeated? This is what the answer is in Scripture, because of their following after other gods. This was breaking the covenant in the most fundamental way which brought the curse upon the nation of Israel. Spiritual adultery, in other words. Their heart went after other gods. They broke the marriage covenant that is between God and his people. That's why when you get to Ephesians, it talks about in Ephesians how we're to love our spouses as Christ loved the church. That marriage covenant that is so sacred to the Lord. So the New Testament teaches that the worship of other God, another God or a part of God's creation leads to perversion and separation from God. So when Jesus was being tested as the second Adam in the wilderness, Satan had come against him in his weakest moment with the full power of temptation. And when Satan offered Jesus the kingdoms of the world, he says, if you only worship me, I will give you what you want. Just a simple act of worship, that's all I want. What did Jesus, how did Jesus answer him? This is how Jesus answered him. And again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world in their glory. And he said to him, all these things I will give you if you fall down and worship me. Verse 10, then Jesus said to him, go, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and serve him only. See, that is it. That is the key. So the the principles contained in these commandments are not to be ignored by Christians. Our Lord did not come to destroy them, but to fulfill them. Now Christians live under, as I mentioned last time, the law of Christ, and contained within his law is the moral law in which Christ laid bare the inner impulses of love that validates them to love God supremely and put him first and then to reflect his love to others in this is the fulfillment of the commandments. So in closing this morning, I do want to say that here's the bottom line to the first commandment that was really mentioned in a book uh, on the Ten Commandments by a man named Mark Rooker, and he said this, The most intimate of all relationships on the human plane, of course, marriage, became the analogy for God's intimate relationship with his people. The first commandment, you shall have no other gods before me, implies that there there may be no intruding third parties in marriage. Is that not true? That is not only true in the human realm. It is true between us and God. Why? Because God is a jealous God, and he will not tolerate you or I, you or me, worshiping anyone else but him, anything else but him. So when we do that, that's when we develop a very high view of God, and we should not fall from that high view because that high view means everything else that comes underneath it We need to ask, is this God's will? Is this what God's word says? 
And if it is God's will and it is what God's word says, then that's what we do. And that's how we live. Amen. Let's pray. Lord, thank you again for the word of God. Thank you, Lord, that contained in it is, is very clear teaching on who you are, what you require. And I do pray, Lord, that if anyone here today does not know the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior, as their Lord, have never come and called upon you to save them from their sin and from your wrath, I pray today would be the day they come. But for all those who do know you, Lord, I pray that our understanding of a high level of God would have increased today to the point of understanding that changes the way we live. I pray, Lord, that we, by your Spirit, would carry out this commandment on a day-by-day basis, that there would be no one else we bow down to, Lord. There would be no one else that we pray to. There would be no one else that we give allegiance to that we come with our problems to, that we praise in worship and song to. There would be no one else but you. And I pray that as we exalt your name, that all the blessings that come to us because of who you are and we being your children, we would receive gladly. We worship you today for who you are and what you've done for us. In Christ I pray, amen. Let's stand together.